This is John Bailey. Keep listening to Love That Voiceover. Hello, this is Christopher Walken, and I gotta love that Rebecca. Hosting Love That Voiceover. Come on, listen to it. Hello, all you fabulous, wonderful, sexy, awesome listeners of Love That Voiceover. Today, I am really excited as usual, but really excited about my guest because I have someone from the mysterious background of production. All those people who really don't like to be in the spotlight. I've got you now. It's the mysterious and wonderful Randy Ryan. Welcome, Randy. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Listen, I was referred to Randy, and Randy is the co-founder of Hamster Ball Mm -hmm. Studios out of Austin, Texas, Mm -hmm. but you have another location. I had a couple of VO fellows say, you know, Randy would be probably a really great person to interview and who would be able to give you some great stories about what it's like in production behind the mic. Well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So what I wanted to let everybody know is, is we're going to get into all the details about what's happening at Hamster Ball Studios with all the voiceover and the gaming and sound design, sound effects, all of that. But what I want you to know is something about Randy and how he got to become the co-founder of Hamster Ball in 1995. Um, Hamster Ball, very quickly for everyone, is basically audio production from music to voiceover to sound design. Randy brings to the table the music and voice talent casting and directing, sound design and sound effect sort of thing. Music plays a large part in the voiceover world because not only from the the factor of music and its direct impact uh, with voice, but also with the idea of the musicality of voice itself without any music itself how important that is to the role of the voice actor when they come to the table, let's say, or Mike. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, yeah, we started actually started in Indianapolis, which is where the other location is, and uh, moved to Austin and opened up uh, the second studio, which is really kind of the, you know, it's my main studio uh, back in 2005. So. Okay. Hamsterball was commenced in 1995. Mm-hmm. And Hamster Ball is uh, a combination of things. You are the producer and lead composer at Hamster Ball. Mm-hmm. You are an Indian. You hail from Indiana. Is that correct? Well, sort of. That's where the company started. I'm <clears throat> probably more a child of the Midwest than I am anywhere else. But I was born in Decatur, Illinois. Uh, grew up uh, primarily in uh, Cincinnati. Ah. And, uh, and then I went on the road for what ended up being, um, if my math is correct, I think for the better part of 13 years. And wow. somewhere in there, I actually went back to school and uh, got a degree from Indiana University in marketing. Wow. And, um, but you were but, on yeah. the road on, on the road for music, correct? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. I was a player, writer, um, singer in terms of harmonies. I was never a lead singer. But, um, but yeah, that's what I did for many years that's very impressive i mean that's a hard life on the road really as a musician yep you know it yes and no um i I think doing it at that time in my life was absolutely the right thing to do if i were Mm -hmm. to do it now well a i would be crazy but um (laughs) and b that kind of lifestyle in a sense that kind of when i say lifestyle you know the ability to actually go out and earn a living doing uh shows yeah, really just playing shows on the road as a largely unsigned act um, that, that 
it's not impossible, but it really doesn't exist anymore. And oh, really? It's shifted that much that because I understand now we're we're going on a little bit of a tangent, but I do want to make sure I understand your perspective on music and the music industry. Mm-hmm. Because what I understand is that the only way people as musicians now that perform in front of live audiences, that's where they really earn their money because digital and the whole download kind of wrecked the uh, music industry revenue side. Is that well, true? or? Yes and no. I think the difference, I think the difference, you know, in a, in a sense, the answer to that is yes. The difference between that and what I was doing 20-ish years ago is that most people are not able to earn a living. I actually did nothing else. I mean, I, you know, right. now, was I getting rich? No. But was I actually able to eat, uh, have a place to live, um, you know, pay my bills, right. all that thing? The answer is yes. Right, uh, right. That really does not exist anymore. It, it exists um, in, you have to hit a certain level of, of fame um, the clubs don't exist, and the clubs that do exist uh, don't pay well enough, you know, for for that. That's right. what's really that's what's really changed. That's really changed. So now you toured, like you said, you were on the road uh, mm-hmm. for thirteen some years, mm-hmm. and uh, then what happened? How did Hamster Ball come about? First of all, I was always on the road. You know, my goal always was to basically be a uh, an artist who was out playing uh, my own songs for a living right and when it became apparent that that was going to be a difficult process process moving forward a lot of it due to just age which unfortunately you know for better or for worse the music industry is still largely a young person's game there are people older of course who right. do make it but it's 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 a dip that you know the, the older you get the more difficult the sell it is especially back when whether it was a good system or a bad system, the system was you know, was getting a label deal right and, um, you know and once you hit a certain age that uh, th- your prospects dim no matter how wonderful you are or your songs are so yep. what it shifted for me was to a have a more stable home life and then b um if i were going to continue to write which is what i wanted to do where else could i do this and it was probably not going to be as a performing musician and you know a lot of things happened in the middle but basically that's where um that's where this ended up shifting and uh, my my wife, who was also a musician, and I decided that that was what we wanted to do. And we got into the brave new world, uh, which was not a new world. It was just new for us, <laughs> uh, writing commercial music. Uh, and that's what we hung our flagpole out with originally and uh, called it the wonderful name CMB, which was short for Creative Music for Business, which was a, probably a god-awful name. But that's what it was <laughs> when we started. Got to start somewhere. Had to start somewhere. Found out very quickly how uber competitive it was because it was an entrenched industry. Yeah. Uh, We were new and, you know, and really it was almost starvation at that point. Wow. And the way that we, and so that's how we kind of got into voiceover because after a while, it's like, you know, the projects were few and far between. Um, We weren't being you know, offered a great deal of money and it's all wonderful to say, well, you know, you hold out for something that's worthy. Right. Uh, when, but when you don't have enough projects under your belt, sometimes the only way you can get things is to do it on the cheap. Right. And so because we were doing advertising production, it's like, well, all these, uh, basically all these commercials have, you know, music and sound design and voice talent. And right. so we started going, well, let's at least up our budget a bit um, by 
saying that we would offer the voice talent. And we just went to agents, you know, to find it. We had nothing to do with really with casting or any of that kind of stuff. It was literally cash flow. Let's move this from being um, a $2,500 project up to a $3,500 project or a $3,800 project. And even if the most of that money was going to go out the window to voice talent, we were getting more cash in the door and we were making our customers more accustomed to paying us a higher dollar. So really, that was that's fascinating. Now, what year was this approximately? Can you give us? Mid to late 95, I guess probably 96 maybe, because we started actually in the summer of, of 95. 95, yeah. Uh, so yeah, probably by that winter. Uh, when things started getting cold and snow was in and everything's depressing anyway, it's like we got to do something. <laughs> and w- I'm, I'm fascinated that you branched out into including that because you saw all of that happening anyway. So what you said, in essence, if I could put it in a different perspective, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is you said, mm-hmm. we want a piece of that pie. We want a bigger piece of the pie for the. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Even if it meant outsourcing it, even if it meant that 80, 90 percent of it, you know, went out the door as fast as it came in, it still was upping the budget and getting people more used to, you know, used to uh, paying us more. And it was also a way for us to um, actually to branch out to say, well, yeah, you know, we can uh, offer a little more soup to nuts. Um, right. You know, you're not just coming to us as a music house. You're coming to us more as a production company. And so then what happened? Where did it go from there? Well, um, really, the funny thing that happened was um, Laurie. Yeah. And, and the other founder um, one day because the Internet was starting to slowly work its way into people's lives. And we were kind of early adopters. Um, her comment was, why is there no audio on the Internet? Huh. To which I said, good question. I don't know. Which sparked a conversation that led us, perhaps foolhardily, to say, why don't we be the people, the, one of the first people out there providing audio for the internet? And what we found was suddenly, because of how much things were growing, that now we all of a sudden had this wide open market. Nobody was tackling it. And the reason was, is because everything was so... Uh, at that time, I mean, people had, you know, 9,600 modems, 14.4 modems. Slow. were like, Oh, wow, that's like, great. Right. You know, right. and so there was no room to put anything up. Nobody had any storage. Nobody. So what we did is we went out, we bought a bunch of sound cards uh, because they all sounded different. And we figured, well, if we deliver MIDI files and we just optimize what we're doing. So we're using the, the actual MIDI file, you know, the, the sounds that the various sound cards have on them. Uh, went out and got, right. I don't know how many, you know, I, I don't remember how many, but, you know, we, we basically just kept buying the most popular cards and we'd swap them in and out of, you know, motherboards and, um, and then, you know, write songs using MIDI to see how it worked. And it's like, oh, piano on that one is god awful. Maybe we shouldn't use piano. We would just optimize things so that on every card, they sounded at least pretty good. Right. And then, so now what we had to sell was not only we can compose, but like, and we can get audio on your web page. Now, the people who could afford this and who were willing to do it were actually the big companies, Ford, Chrysler, White Castle. Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember who some of our early customers were. Uh, Hewlett Packard, we actually provided the audio for the first audio banner ad. It was a Hewlett Packard banner ad from which you could print and from which, as small as it was, all we did was sample a little fax tone and put it on there. But by God, you roll over it. And there's a fax tone, which to which to a lot of people was like, oh, that's awesome. Right, right. And so 
kind of by luck um, and again, necessity, we started doing that. Now, voiceover really didn't come into that for a while because, again, you couldn't really push voiceover files through there. But eventually, They're too big at that point still, correct? Way too big. Right. And so we pushed the, the envelope on that a little bit. And we started playing with very, you know, other forms of files, a lot of which, don't, to the best of my knowledge, don't even exist now. Um, right. Got it. it. You know, it's not that long ago. It's yeah. only about 18 years ago, but it seems like... When you bring up these issues, it just seems like it was another before the Industrial Revolution. It it was. I mean, the Internet grew so fast and changed so much and just changed exponentially. And so, of course, then what happened was our clients turned into interactive ad agencies, agency.com, Razorfish, uh, DoubleClick, all these, you know, Internet companies. well, again, a lot of which, you know, went away at some point. And um, but now things started to grow. And now what made sense, because people are starting to get tired of splash pages and interstitials, right. now it makes sense to do more online presentations. There was started to be enough storage and enough speed. Right. that now all of a sudden we could start incorporating voiceover in that. And so we now had a ready audience to start growing that part of the business. But largely what we did also for the same kind of fortuitous reason is we really gravitated into doing audio for video games and a uh, funny little story on that when yeah my brother wanted me to uh he was a big gamer and i dabbled in playing games but he was really into games he was um he came to me one day and he said, bro, you know, I've just been listening to this stuff that's playing in video games and this stuff is crap and you're a way better composer than that and you should go after this. And it's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And after a while, it's like, well, you know, why not? We've already, you know, why would we not pull another industry into what it is that we do? So I started searching around for some video game companies and there was one there in Indianapolis called Sunstorm. And they had, sure enough, they needed help with some stuff. And they needed help with some sound design and voiceover for this hunting game. And my thought at the time was like, I have no idea who's ever going to buy or play a hunting game. <laughs> but hey, it's a video game credit. So we did some work for them. And it was not a lot of work. It was, I mean, I think it was one, I don't remember specifically, I think it was one voiceover talent. Um, and some minimal sound design. A lot of the sound design they were doing there in-house. I don't remember what our invoice was, but it wasn't very big. But but I didn't care. It was a video game credit. Right. (laughs) And then this game went out to Walmart, this game called Deer Hunter, and blew up into this enormous hit that nobody saw coming. Fantastic. And so right about that same time, the dot-com bust started. And a lot of these clients that we had, literally, I mean, it was almost like the spigot turned off almost overnight. Right. And in yet another state of panic, it was like, it became, well, I should probably start calling every video game company we can get our hands on and say, lead with basically, hi, we did some of the audio for Deer Hunter. Yeah. that was how we got into video games. So you jumped into games yes. and you decided, oh, you needed to really expand that that aspect of your business. Um, yep. Bring us to present and tell us where how that aspect of your business sits with, with Hamster Ball Studios now. Well, one of the things that we saw as the growth area in um, video games was um, the growth of voice talent. 
Um, a lot of voice that had been done up to that time, you know, I mean, you actually had people who were doing the equivalent of uh, throwing a Twinkie over the wall to the guy in the next cubicle saying, hey, why don't you be a monster on this game? Right. Uh, you know, and, you know, and limited, again, same kind of things we were dealing with the internet, limited storage, limited capacity, because, you know, things were either on floppies or they were by this time, this had come out. And so things were now, you know, gravitating to CDs, but still you had a lot of constraint and a lot of that constraint was taken up by art. So for us, it wasn't that different um, in the sense of we were dealing with a lot of the same issues, small amounts of data. How do you push it across? You know, they were giving fascinating you know, so room. Because they, you know, because they're video games and these people are visual and it's like, oh, we should have sound on this. Well, we got about a half a meg left. Uh, <laughs> wonder who can put some sound in with that, you know. Let's go to Randy. <laughs> he knows how to squeeze it there. <laughs> that was kind of some of the sell. But we also started seeing voiceover for the first time as more than just, as we said earlier, cash flow or a different thing to offer. Because now what we really needed were actors. And the first thing that we realized was a lot of the people that we did know were more announcer types because that's what we had been doing. Right. So we started on kind of a quest to find voice actors. Did you go back to the agencies you'd already been working with? In um, some cases, yes. But um, I I don't really, you know, no, this is one I don't really remember how we started actually just going to hunt for individual voice talent. But that was what started. And... You know, if somebody was with an agent, that was fine. If somebody didn't have an agent, that was fine. If they were a union, it didn't matter because we were in a right-to-work state um, as far as the union was concerned. Um, so we could play both sides of the fence. We right. could provide you know, union talent, provide non-union talent. It didn't really matter. Um, but we just a little light bulb went on that we needed to start doing this. Now, I was still not really voice directing at that time. Uh, I was sitting in on sessions, of course, and I, and I was watching the people who were directing. And after a while, I started going... Because a lot of these people were people who were from the game developer, the game publisher, and it's and it kind of started striking me that I I think I can do this better, or at least as well. But I still didn't want to stick my toe in it completely, so I started hiring voice directors, uh, some of whom were voice talents and were good friends of mine, and you know one in particular who's still just a, a very good friend of mine and a very good voice talent that I work with quite a bit. Um, and he was even the one who started saying, you know, you can do this. And so that's how I started sticking, uh, sticking my toe in the water as a voice director, because I never saw myself as that. I wasn't a voice talent. I'd never grown up, you know, directing anybody. Um, but that's where you say the music, I think, came in. And it right. took me years. That's what it was. It was the understanding of the musicality of the voice and why a pace worked and why a specific bring your voice down, get close to the mic. And, you know, and as, and as somebody who was a singer, even if not a lead singer, you know, understanding of voice, you know, of mic technique. Right. Mic placement. Um, Proximity. Absolutely. And why you tell somebody, you know, back up two steps. Right. Uh, tell somebody, you know, put your lips on, on the mic right now. Put it on that capsule. And right. I want to do this. <clears throat> so, um, and that's how it started. Fascinating. We will be back next week. Thanks for joining us.